Hello and welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors and amazing medical professionals to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Dana Binnington and today we're going to be discussing where you can find your nearest menopause clinic. Each week I get emails from women saying they've had absolutely no help in managing their menopausal symptoms after their cancer diagnosis. And many echo what I've been experiencing myself, and that is the total confusion of what's what. What's menopause? What's cancer? And you might wonder who is the right person to help you? What can your GP do for you? And do you have access to a menopause specialist on the national health system, especially if you're in the UK. We're going to be talking about waiting lists. How do you get on the waiting list to see a specialist service and who can refer you? And I'm so delighted that the amazing Dr. Lindsay Thomas is joining us for this conversation today. There's no one I know that is better equipped to have this conversation. Lindsay uh, holds the British Menopause Society Advanced Certificate. There are not that many practitioner practitioners in the UK like that. She also works in a really busy NHS clinic in Leeds, looking after very complex cases. And she's also works privately seeing patients. She's also been a GP for nearly 20 years. And so she is so amazing at really helping us figure out who can help us and how do you get access to a menopause specialist. Dr. Thomas, it's a pleasure and an honour to sit here again opposite you. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, and I think the podcast is great and it's really reaching people who need that help. So thank you. And you were supporting of the podcast when we first launched it because you are on one of my very first episodes, um, How to Navigate the Medical System. And I think it's so lovely that in all this time, in over a year of weekly episodes, you've really been encouraging and supportive. And so thank you for that. It's absolutely amazing. I just think it's so, well, I was really honoured to be on one of the first um, podcasts that you did, but I think episodes you did, but I think it's um, it's really important that women have somewhere within this group where they can access help that is specifically for them. Because although there's a big conversation around the menopause, often women who have had cancer can feel very left out of that because it doesn't apply specifically to them. Yeah. Um you are the perfect um, guest to talk us through how we can access help within the medical system, especially for someone who lives in the UK, because you work both in the NHS and privately. You have worked as a GP and with a special interest in women's health for a long, 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 long time in Sheffield. You also work in the cancer services. You work privately. And I really want for you to talk us through how we can access help. It's one of the biggest questions we get. And I think because of your expertise in working in all of these areas, I hope you can really help us find access for anyone listening. So tell me a little bit about you first. Um, you are near Sheffield and tell me where you work and what your passion is. It's been a really good introduction for me anyway, Daddy. You know me so well now. Um, so yeah, I've worked as a GP in Sheffield for 17, 18 years. And I've always had a, a, an interest in, in women's health, but that grew more specifically into being an interest in the menopause. 
And I class myself as being really lucky to work in one of the few menopause clinics that there are, uh, specialist menopause clinics that there are across the country. So I work in um, Leeds um, with my colleague, Dr. Claire Spencer. Um, and we see referrals from GPs um, with tricky patients, um, not you know, not necessarily women who've had cancer, but anyone who is is struggling with their menopause and treatments for whatever reason. But we also do get referrals across from um, other specialists within the hospital who've got women who who need our our support. Um, and I think having been a GP, well, I am a GP, but having worked in primary care and then seeing the referrals that are coming through and seeing the the different process and different um, experience that women have who've had cancer, uh, I feel quite lucky to have that viewpoint on it, really. So in gen- it's, it's good for me to know why it might be difficult for GPs to help women who are in this situation, because it's much more complex. It's not, you know, it's not as straightforward. And GPs are not a specialist. I'm not a specialist in, for example, musculoskeletal problems. I can deal with most of the stuff that comes through the door in general practice, but there are times when I need help. And that's exactly the same for menopause care. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I'm in a good position to yes. give some advice how to get that help. Yeah. And I really want to think about all of the different women listening to our podcast and why they might need help. And so just at the moment in our Empowered Menopause program, for example, we've got a 10 ladies and two are over 10 years on from their initial diagnosis and they're still really struggling with finding adequate support and they don't know what their treatment options are. They have no longer access to an oncologist or surgeon. So primary care, their GP is their first option. And then we have women who are still under breast care nurses and they see oncologists. So I think the spectrum is really wide and most of the women say they've not had adequate support and help. And so we want to really try and find a little bit of access for all of the different women out there. So get put your thinking cap on <laughs> and see um, how we can sort of help signpost and what the pros and benefits are and cons are for going to different services. So let's start with the role of a general practitioner. A woman comes through the door, um, she's had a cancer diagnosis, she is um, experiencing menopausal symptoms, whether they are because she might be on a hormone medication or maybe she had surgical menopause and no aftercare. What can you do as a GP with this patient? Okay, so I am a big champion of um, GPs because it's a, it's a hard job and most GPs do an absolutely brilliant job. And I think one of the first barriers has been that not just for women who have had a menopause after cancer, but for menopause in general, we haven't fully appreciated um, as a medical profession the impact that that can have on women in terms of the symptoms that they can experience, the breadth of those symptoms, um, and you know the risks and benefits of the treatments that are available. So that's been a big barrier to begin with. And then when you add someone in who's got some complexity, it, it adds to that and adds to the concerns over whether this is the right thing to do. Now, you'll have some GPs who are really experienced and have a real specialism in the menopause and women's health and will feel very comfortable in giving that advice and helping someone navigate through and make an informed choice about what those risks and benefits are for them. I think sometimes when we hear the word cancer, it can make us, it can make some patients but also some clinicians really hesitant to even think about um HRT if we if we focus on that to begin with because of the um the, the concerns about 
the risks of um, breast cancer with HRT. But obviously, that doesn't apply to one, those risks and benefits are, are being viewed slightly differently now. But it does not everyone who's had cancer is has had a breast cancer or has had a hormone dependent cancer. So the um the risks and benefits for them are going to be very different. So I think it's not looking at people as as just one thing. So so in terms of what can a GP do, if they've got the knowledge and the experience, then they can probably be very helpful in it, uh, helping someone decide what um well helping someone navigate through are my symptoms due to the menopause or are my symptoms due to other things that are going on are they as a result of treatments that i'm taking are they as a result of um surgery and things like that that people have had are some of them you know trauma and psychological based from having had a cancer diagnosis so the first point would be sort of deciding what's going on and the second would be then helping someone think about how they're going to navigate their way through that and that's discussing with someone all of the prescribable treatment options we've got, so hormones and non-hormonal, and also all of the complementary therapies that people can think about to, um, and lifestyle changes that people can think about to support themselves. And then if there is someone who doesn't feel that they have that knowledge, then they should be signposting to hopefully to someone else within the practice who does or then asking for advice from secondary care. So that's those are the steps really that it should take with, with your GP. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so many women you speak to say, oh, I've been to my GP, but I've sort of not gotten the help I needed. And sometimes I wonder whether our expectations are a little bit wrong because there is no way you can address all of these symptoms and figuring out what you want to do and maybe having a prescribable option with one appointment, right? You just don't have the time. And so I wonder whether the expectation should be if anyone is listening and thinking, I need to rekindle um, maybe a conversation with my general practitioner. It's thinking this is going to be a process. I might have the initial conversation and just tell my GP what is going on for me. As you say, maybe work out, could this be the menopause? Could it be a, a different side effect? Is it a long, um, so late effect of chemotherapy or something else? And I'm really thinking this is going to take multiple appointments. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I, I don't think it, uh, yeah, I think expectation is really important, but I don't think it's wrong to have an expectation that that person in front of you is going to be able to help you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't think that that conversation should stop with with your GP if they've not if they don't feel that they can and in no way am I you know that I'm not being critical of GPs in in no way if they don't know whether certain treatments are going to be okay or don't know whether your symptoms are related to the menopause or related to cancer treatments then it shouldn't stop there there should always be and there should be an expectation that that they're going to try and get that help and advice for you and sometimes that might involve very often, it will involve speaking to either the oncologist or you're in, that you're under, or the surgeon that you've been under, because obviously it differs depending on on what um on what treatments and what stage someone is at in their 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 journey. Um, speaking to them, and and you know, we often in general practice, not everywhere because things do vary nationally, but we often have access to something called advice and guidance, um, or it, uh, under another term, and that means that we can we're not asking for an appointment, but we're asking actually, this is what's going on. What do you think? And then we can have a reply back, which then guides us to be able to often manage things in primary care or 
turn that into an appointment because we know that that person needs extra help. So, I, yeah, the, the expectation that it might not all be solvable in one appointment, I think, is is mm. good because it might take a bit of toing and froing. It might, um, often it's really helpful, even with women who haven't had cancer, for women to complete symptom diaries and to try and think about actually what collection of symptoms are going on. When did they start? What does it seem triggered them? Did it start with my treatment or has it started a little bit later? Um so, so yes, get a number of appointments to gather that information, get the specialist information in if that's needed for a bit of guidance as well. Mm. And so talk us through um, just a quick overview of the prescribable options that a GP could be happy with prescribing for someone with a history of cancer, depending, um, I mean, I know there are so many symptoms, but there aren't that many prescribable options. What would they be? Okay, so... Um, Obviously, it would very much depend on what the cancer has been and whether that's been estrogen-dependent or not estrogen-dependent and and the type of cancer within that because there are some cancers that we would be much more cautious using HRT and there are some that actually we should be, especially if women are younger, we should feel we actively encouraging women to have HRT but also, um, you know, not putting barriers there when they're not needed. So that's the first important step. So um, in terms of managing menopause symptoms, the most effective treatment is HRT. So that's a combination of estrogen, which helps with the symptoms. And for women who haven't had a hysterectomy, having a progestogen to protect the lining of the womb. And the way that we give it, the way we prescribe the regime would depend on a, the, the um, what was going on for that woman in terms of periods, those sorts of things. Um, so, but that's obviously not an option which is available to everyone, or it certainly wouldn't be first line and recommended. So we've also got, so for women who it wouldn't be, or it would be um, seen as a contraindication, which would be, for example, for women who've had an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, we would never be suggesting that first line, that that was the right thing to do. Um, and in that situation, we've got a number of non-hormonal prescribable drugs, which we know can help with some of the symptoms which women experience. And then which one of those we choose is really looking at how many of what are the most important symptoms and how many might this medication help with. So there is a family of antidepressants called SSRIs and SNRIs, and they can be um, helpful for hot flushes and night sweats. But they can also be helpful depending on which one we choose with um, joint aches and pains. They might help with sleep to some degree, um, emotional issues, anxiety, low mood, things like that. So we've got that family and within that there are ones that would be might be better than others to choose. For example, there is a medication called venlafaxine, which has been done really well in trials um, in com- compared to other options with helping hot flushes and night sweats. But it does also help with joint pain. So that can be a really helpful option, particularly women who um, are experiencing symptoms because they're on um, drugs called aromatase inhibitors, which look at reducing the amount of estrogen in your body to, to really very significantly, well, really to nothing is the aim. Um, they can experience quite a lot of joint pain. So in that situation, that can be quite a helpful option. Um, there are medications that are traditionally used for um, irritable bladder or an overactive bladder, so something called oxybutynin, and that has been shown to be helpful for hot flushes and night sweats. 
And because women can experience urinary symptoms with the menopause, that might be a good option if you've got someone whose main symptoms are hot flushes, night sweats, but their bladder is also, you know, they're up a number of times in the night, they're needing to go really frequently in the daytime, you might be able to sort of wrap all that up together. So it's about looking at what's the best option for that woman in front of you. There are other options. There are some um, old-fashioned medications that we used to use for treating blood pressure. Um, it's not massively effective. It's called clonidine, but sometimes that is still used. Um, and then there are anti-epilepsy drugs, so gabapentin and pregabalin. Again, they're, they're further down the ladder of, of options that you might choose. But there are things that we we can try and can be really successful um, for some women, as I'm sure you've seen, Danny, in, in the women that you have contact with. Yeah, and it's so interesting what you say because you and I were running workshops together for younger women going through the menopause after cancer. And I remember this one lady, and I think you were on that workshop with me. She was after bowel cancer. She was in her 20s and no one had thought after hormonal health. Uh, she had had radiation. Her, her ovaries stopped working and she had no more estrogen and there was no contraindication for her particular case. And it really upset me that for the women where, for example, hormone replacement therapy isn't a contraindication, that that isn't thought about. And so I do think it's about becoming that empowered patient and just being aware and thinking, ah, hang on a minute, is this treatment putting me into menopause? Asking the question so that we can almost be proactive and think, I need help as soon as maybe this treatment is finished or if before, for example, if it's a surgically onset menopause. Um, and then to be, like you say, really well informed about what is going on with us and having that symptom diary. Um, all the women we sort of chat to in our programs, we're all over the place. You know, we're so emotional. This is such an emotional time. We're so worried. The fear of recurrence is so real. It can stop us in our tracks. We've got all these random symptoms. And then we go to the GP and we just go, rah, <laughs> rah. And, and we feel left and we almost have no hope and faith that someone is going to help us and that we do have options. And so the more collected we can be, which I know is really difficult, but the more we can say, actually, this has been going on for six weeks, eight weeks. These are my symptoms. The better I hear from you, uh, you can find a treatment for us that works. And I think timelines are really important. Yeah. And I often feel in my appointments um, that I'm interrogating people because I will be saying, and and when did this happen? And what treatment were you are, are on then? And how many years has that been? And I think some of the women think, oh my goodness, I can't remember any of this. But actually, it's really, it is really important because it helps to uh, filter down, you know, where are these symptoms coming from? What are they most likely to be due to? Because there can be a real crossover between what's menopausal, what's due to cancer treatments and what is due to the, the psychological stress of having a, you know, going through that process and having a cancer diagnosis. So having that information together and having formulated in your head, well, this is when this started. This is when these symptoms happened. It is really, really helpful. Yeah. And I also know from speaking to so many women that these are a series of conversations with their GP. I remember working with Keely and Keely was after ovarian cancer and she had a hysterectomy and Keely really did not want any more medication. She really, she just felt she wanted to just be as natural and and pure as she could be to regain her, her strength and her health. And when we discussed the role of antidepressants, for example, I remember Keely was really 
it just didn't sit well with her. And it took a long time, months of conversation and of her going to her GP several times until Keely, in her case, she did want to try the antidepressants and they really did help her. And it didn't change, her worry was they might change her, but she said, gosh, they didn't change me. They made me feel a little bit like me again. And so that was her own experience. But the reason I'm sharing this is it's, it wasn't one appointment with the GP and she made that decision. It was a process. And I think that's the expectation we should have. This is a process and we're on that journey. And wherever you are in it, whether you're rekindling with your GP, whether you're on the waiting list for a menopause specialist, it's definitely not a one appointment. Everything is fixed sort of situation. And I think I know it's, you know, not always easy at the moment. Um, you know, there's such a lot of pressure on on primary care that it can be really difficult to get appointments as well. But I think in this situation where you can, it's really important to try and have an appointment if you if you're getting on well with that um GP that you're seeing, it's really important to try and have that continuity because then you are making a plan together. You've had a discussion. Um, that you've been able to go home and digest it and decide what you want to do, maybe monitor your symptoms for a bit and then go back to that person who is taking up where you left off rather than having to start the whole thing again. And I think that can be um, a really important part of this as well is that continuity. Yeah. And then if that isn't enough, if we've explored our options, if we're feeling not really getting much out of my GP, as a GP yourself, how do you feel when people change their GP. So many women I speak to, they worry when I say to them, well, you could try and look for a new GP. You could change GP practice. You can ask for a different GP within the practice. Women feel really uneasy doing that. How do you feel as a GP when that happens? Well, I've always worked in um, relatively big practices with quite a lot of um, choice of doctors within them. And I think if I'm ever, I, I never feel, you know, obviously I might feel offended if someone had chosen to go to someone else who didn't like me, which hopefully hasn't happened very often. Um, but if someone was choosing to go to someone else because I was at the limit of my expertise, I would probably already have suggested that. So I wouldn't feel in any way offended by that because I know I used um, musculoskeletal problems as an example before, but if I've been seeing someone with a shoulder problem and I know that my colleague down the corridor is much better at that than me, I will already probably, what I will have done is say to the patient, I'll have done the bits that I can do and I will have probably said, I'm going to discuss this with my colleague and see what they think. And if I've discussed it with them and that means that I think they need an appointment, then I share that with the patient. I would say, do you know I think in this situation, you know, I know I've helped you with lots of issues that you've had, but I think in this situation, you would be better going to see my colleagues. So I think as a GP, there's no, there shouldn't be, you know, GPs wouldn't be offended if they know that that's the reason that someone's making that choice. And at the end of the day, you know, whether that isn't really the most important part here I is know. whether you think you're a or not. It's about getting your help. If we went for a haircut... And we really didn't like the haircut. We're not going to go, but well, I mean, we are British. We might go back, just not to. <laughs> you, um, it, we wouldn't go back because you wouldn't want to have to do that again. And I, I think it's about prioritizing yourself. And, and if, if it's not working for you and you're not getting the help that you need, then. Like most doctors wouldn't be offended at all. Mm. And it can be such a faff, like it can be so difficult to get an appointment. And we're on that phone so long trying to get the appointment or trying to sort of book them in online or getting a 
video consultation or whatever it is, it can be such a faff. But if anything, I think this is where we really need to advocate for ourselves because I do really think that primary care is a, is a really good sort of connection um, for a starting point. Now, we do have private menopause specialists in the country. We also have menopause clinics in the country on the NHS. Let's talk about the NHS option. We don't have many clinics in the country, but I do know that they exist for women like us, right? For women with complex medical histories. That's why menopause specialists and clinics um, exist. It, it says so on the British Menopause Society website. Yet the minority of women we speak to know that. I think they'll know more about that now. But even two years ago, when you and I started to talk and work together, women didn't know they existed for us as cancer patients. Um, how do we access these? So um, accessing them can be tricky because like you said, there are not many of them. And I think that probably, so there are clinics that have been established for, for years and years. Um, but I think it stems from the fact that menopause hasn't really been a priority. Yeah. So it hasn't been an area that's needed to be, that has been prioritized as being developed. And then now we're in the situation where, you know, there are funding issues all over the NHS. So it's very difficult to prioritize one service over, over another. Um, and traditionally, the menopause, menopause treatment as in a specialist setting sits within gynecology and rightly so because it is a women's health issue. But gynecologists, like any specialism in secondary care, so if you compared that to respiratory doctors, they are not all asthma specialists. They are not all cystic fibrosis specialists. And that's the same with gynecology. Within gynecology, the gynecologists will have their specialist areas. And that doesn't mean that menopause will be that specialism for everyone. So um, so getting help in that way when women are referred in, that's where women will be referred into. But it doesn't mean that there is a menopause specialist that they're going to be seeing. Um, so it's about trying to find those clinics where there is someone in charge of the clinic, leading the clinic, who has a specialist interest and qualification in the menopause for women who are more complex. Unfortunately, that is improving, um, but it's about finding those clinics, isn't it? So you mentioned the British Menopause Society, and they do have a really good search tool, which you can pop in. You want an NHS, you're looking for NHS doctors, you can say where you are in the country, you can say how broad you want to cast the net in terms of how you know close to where you live, you're, you're prepared to look at. And it will pull out anyone who has got an advanced menopause qualification and is classed as a menopause specialist. And then that should bring up the clinic that is closest to you that you could access on the NHS. Yeah. And we also know, and I think this goes against sort of common belief, that you can be referred to quite far away from where you live or where you were treated for your cancer. So you could, I don't know, live in Cambridge and be referred to a London clinic, right? For example, I know um, my doctor at University College London Hospital sees people from Wales. If you're prepared to travel or if you have a telephone con consultation, you can be referred. And I think a lot of GPs don't actually know that. Like I know, um, you know, we often send women and say, actually, you're part of the program, you're in our group now, go and try and get on the waiting list to see a menopause specialist. And we talk women through and say, you can ask your breast care nurse or your oncologist to refer you or your general practitioner to refer you. And 
there are hurdles along the way from the beginning because often GPs aren't quite sure who to refer to, where to refer to. My personal menopause specialist, I think the center is called Center for Reproductive Health. There is no menopause in the terminology like you've just explained, and that can be confusing, can't it, as well? Figuring out, even if you've got that list, where is a good place to go to? And then do they have experience with people with cancer? Oh, such a minefield. So I think that's where the British Menopause Society search tool is good because it identifies those clinics, even if they're coming under a different name. There are sometimes some barriers um, with referring out of area in terms of funding and, and those sorts of things. But if you have looked online and you've found where there is a registered menopause specialist, then you you, you need to go into the doctors with that information and say, yeah. you know, you know that I've had cancer. We know that, you know, you, you don't, your expertise can't help me at this stage. And I fully appreciate that. So I need to go to someone who has those specialist skills to be able to help me. And this is my nearest clinic. I'd really like to be referred here. And then there is there is a reason for you wanting to be referred there because it's not available any closer. Yeah. And the waiting lists are long, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So currently where I work, I think the waiting list is about nine months for an initial appointment. Um, and we're working incredibly hard um, to get that down but it is difficult. And part of the problem is, is that obviously there has been, which is brilliant, this big explosion in awareness of the menopause and women rightly seeking help for that. But there hasn't necessarily been, it, it is really improving, but there hasn't necessarily been alongside that an increase in confidence and experience in primary care. So we still get lots of referrals through and lots of them, which absolutely need to come to clinic. Yeah. Um, but but some of them, which, you know, we're trying to deal with with all of those issues, as well as the women who, who have had cancer. And then when you think of you yourself now, not as your GP, um, but if you think of your role as a menopause specialist in uh, the NHS setting, when cancer patients come through the door, what is it that they usually come to you for? Is it always the people who can't have hormone replacement therapy or think it's contraindicated and they feel like they have no options or who do you see? So a real mix really, because um, I think that we're very fortunate where I work that we often get referrals directly from the cancer doctors that they have been under, particularly um, if we look at sort of hematological cancers, those 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 types of, of, of issues. So um, often women have come to us because they want, they know that they want to have hormones. Their specialist is very supportive of that. And we're going to help them navigate their way through that with the other medications that they're on and the issues that they've got. Or like you said, we get women who either are at the beginning, fairly at the beginning of their cancer journey and are really struggling with the symptoms that they've got. And that might be um, because they've had chemotherapy and that's obviously had an impact on their ovarian function, so they're menopausal because of that. Or it might be because of the treatments that they're taking that are reducing the amount of estrogen and that's giving them those menopausal symptoms and they need to find a way of navigating through that. Or we see women who are much further along and went through, have gone through their menopause potentially five, six, ten years after they've had their cancer mm. treatments, and it's now a new thing for them. 
and it's about how they navigate their way through. So it's a real mix, really, a real mix and and a real mix of where women are in that journey as well, because some people might have tried um, a number of different options with their GP before they come to us. Yeah. So then we are lucky enough to have sat on the wait list for so long. We come and see um, someone as specialist as you. The process then, is it a very much um, come with your symptoms? Like how do we prepare for the appointment so that we get the most out of it? That's what I want to get out of you because I know a lot of women listening to this might be on the waiting list thinking, how do I get the most out of it? Can the GP ask you questions in the meantime? Do we need to check that we're on that waiting list? Is it enough to come with a symptom checker or is it helpful for you for us to say, what we want from you. Maybe maybe women are on an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen and they've got loads of symptoms and they're saying to you, can you help me manage that? Like how do you feel? What do we what can we do as a patient to best prepare for this? So again, it's really helpful to have that um symptom diary. It's really helpful to have that timeline of where where you've been, a diary of your of your treatments. Because for some women you know, that we're talking a number of years on or that everything's just been, I think a lot of the time when you're diagnosed, when someone is diagnosed with cancer, there's such a flurry of everything going on, particularly in a breast cancer diagnosis where, you know, the surgery, there might be radiotherapy, there might be chemotherapy, then you're having treatments. It can all feel like a bit of a blur as to what happened when and when the symptoms started. So trying to get together in your head what your symptoms are, what the timeline of your journey has been of your symptoms, but also of your treatments can be incredibly helpful. And then anything that you've trialed already. And that means not just things from your GP, you know, anything that you've tried yourself. Have you had some acupuncture? Have you had some hypnotherapy? You know, any of those things um, are really useful to know in terms of then trying to direct the appointment where it needs to go. Yeah. And are you able as a menopause specialist to also help people with some of the medication that they're on that might put them into menopause or mimic the effects or um, symptoms of the menopause? So if someone is an aromatase inhibitor, are you as a menopause specialist able to swap to a different brand for them or advise to take it in the morning instead of the evening or all of those other helpful tips? Or is this as part of the oncologist's job? How are the boundaries? So there are some, I think they would be very, very few and far between. There are some menopause specialists who work within breast clinics and they are better placed to be, you know, changing medicines or liaising with the oncologists within the clinic setting about that. But for most menopause clinics, it would mean, dis it, it absolutely, the important bit is acknowledging that, is knowing that there can be a difference between one aromatase inhibitor and another, that for some, that we need to look at, that women who aren't always aware that the decision between which of those medications to use, how long to use it for, is made on a, um, a sort of decision-making tool, which the oncologists use, which look, look at what is their risk of recurrence and what would their risk of recurrence be if they take these individual treatments. And sometimes those it can be really helpful for women to understand what the actual percentage reduction in risk that they get from their medication is for, for, for both reasons, really. One, because it can be that they think, oh, I've absolutely got to persevere with this. I want that risk reduction. 
for some women, it can be the opposite. And I have had people, and I would never be encouraging anyone to do that without speaking, to the, you know, without us involving their oncologist. But for some women, it can be that the gains are actually quite small. And in comparison to how they feel and how they feel they can function and their quality of life, they they make a decision that, that they're going to swap to something else. But absolutely, it wouldn't be something I would be changing, but I would be recognizing in the patients that I look after and I would be liaising with their oncologist. Mm. So if a woman... And I think... Uh, yeah. Sorry, Danny. As a... Um, sorry to interrupt. No. As a cancer patient, it's very much about um, involving everyone. So having that multidisciplinary team, we need to speak to your specialists often. We do need to get an idea of what if we did this? What if we trialed this? Would you be happy with this? This is what they're struggling with. Sometimes we're the person that actually enables that communication with their oncologist to say, do you know what? I don't think she's perhaps talked about this, but she's really struggling with her menopause symptoms. And that then opens up that conversation. And, you know, oncologists as a bunch through the very... Um, area of medicine that they work in they want their patients to feel better they don't want to think that you know they've got someone who has got through all of the treatments but is feeling so dreadful that day-to-day life is really yeah I think as a patient that's what I hear from so many women I speak to every week we just want to be given options and for the last 18 months all we've said to everyone that you know we've been in workshops and our online courses and programs is that get on the list for a menopause specialist and now a lot of these appointments have come in some women have waited for a year for 18 months even a lot of the appointments have come in and annoyingly some of the women have walked away feeling oh that wasn't actually all that amazing. So I don't know exactly what we were hoping or or the toolbox that we were hoping to be filled, but many women walked away actually thinking, oh, I'm not sure I'm so much the wiser. So I wonder whether it would be helpful to go in and be very clear and say, I have an estrogen-driven cancer, for example. I'm not interested in hormones, but tell me everything else I can do so that you can really get your thinking cap yeah. on. Because I think... Sometimes women go and say, this is my situation. And the menopause specialists weren't that helpful in discussing maybe a 360 degree approach of what should be in our toolbox. But I guess not everyone is looking at it holistically, isn't it? It's difficult. And I think probably a, a, a number of reasons why that might happen. One is that not all of those women might have been referred to a menopause specialist. They might have been referred as menopause but that might not be to a specialist it might be that actually um some of it, it there's very little time in nhs appointments and even in secondary care and as much as you know gosh my clinics overrun every single week no matter how hard i try but there isn't the time to talk about all of those you know the 360 degree approach is absolutely what is going to help these women but they're often once you've discussed you know, the their symptoms, what's going on, the, you know, and talked about, you know, if say, for example, it's someone who's come in and said, do you think I could have HRT? Once you've done that bit, you've almost used up the entire appointment and yeah. it's very difficult. That's, you know, important, but it's very difficult to then have discussed the other things as well. So I think there's, there's some limitations there. And then I suppose the third thing would be is that there is so, it's brilliant that there is so much awareness of the menopause and it's brilliant that there is sort of a community, you know, within the social media world as well. But I think there are some women definitely that I see 
and through no fault of their own, have come with an idea of what, for example, HRT is going to mean for them as a breast cancer patient. And it's not actually what it means. Mm. So I think I'm aware that some women potentially leave my appointments a little bit disappointed because when I have explained the risks and the benefits with all of the evidence that we have to support that, and that evidence is is slim, um, I think sometimes I'm not saying what someone wants wants to hear. Yeah, And I think that's very helpful as well because if it was me, I would want to go to that appointment with lots of hope and with lots of, you know, in, but if there are ideas there of this is actually going to be fine for me, it's going to be much safer than everybody thinks. And then the reality is that potentially it's not. I think that can be disappointing as well. I wouldn't say that that happens lots of times, but it, but it is there. That is an issue as well. Yeah. And I wonder whether that is happening a little bit because I've um, spoken to this one lady just recently who said she's waited for a long time for a menopause specialist. And the first thing the menopause specialist, and that was an, at an NHS um, hospital setting, said to her, um, are you here for HRT? This patient was after breast cancer. And I wonder whether that menopause specialist must have had it a few times, but the appointment went nowhere, um, needless to say, because the patient was so sort of taken aback by uh, by that comment. Um, so I don't think that appointment went very well. But I wonder now, so what I've been wondering is, gosh, we've been encouraging people to go and wait for these menopause specialist appointments. And now they're feeding back to me saying, actually, they're not all of that. I do think we still need to stay connected, wait for those appointments, but I wonder how we can prepare more as patients. And we're working on maybe pre, pre questionnaires or really sort of, I don't know, equipping ourselves better to get the most out of, out of that really um, important appointment, figuring out what we want. Absolutely. Having all of that information to take to your appointment so that you've got all the information that they might need to ask, but also um, having an idea of of where you are, what treatments you think that you're looking for, what you've tried already, what do you really want help with? And sometimes that can be difficult to know. But if you if you do have an idea, then I think sharing that is really, really helpful in the appointment because it means that you are going to get out of that appointment. You've set the focus. Yeah. So you're going to get out of it needs. But it it's, you know, I would say, you know, for the women that I see who who are more complex, again, in, in a specialist clinic, it's not just one appointment. Yeah. Because often I am giving lots of information and we're talking about what risks and benefits of different treatments are, what the options are. I then pop all of that into a clinic letter and often say, why don't you have a think? Why don't you have a think mm. about this? And then you can let me know what you'd like to do or we might need to have a follow-up appointment. So, so yeah, again, it might not just be the one appointment because yeah. it's really big decisions yeah. to make. And I had such a good experience with my menopause, NHS menopause appointments that I really want to share that with people. And I want to help people access, you know, the care I had because it was really good. I had my first menopause specialist at the hospital before I had my ovaries removed and we came up with a plan and I'm a complex place. I had a triple negative breast cancer but like everyone is so so different and that's why we can't compare and that is why we need specialist care by the time I had my ovaries removed it was five years after my triple negative diagnosis so I was five years on it's a really different story to someone who might be two years on and that needs a specialist consultation right um I had a double mastectomy some people don't like there are so many variations some people have I don't know uh, blood clotting issues that might impact what they're going to do. They have other medical conditions, right? And that's why I think 
I really dislike it when people give blanket advice on social media because everyone is so, so, so different and we need that individual care. One thing, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound doom and gloom when I say people have had appointments and they weren't great. I just want to share the truth and what I've been, you know, told by women and what is happening out there. One thing that sort of gets me and I've had several messages over the last few years is that last few months is that people said they've then seek the private menopause specialist and you work privately as well and they were really shocked because the private menopause specialist they saw had no idea about cancer patients or very little knowledge about cancer patients and so now tell me you work as a private menopause specialist you've got a what special qualification to be a menopause specialist yes yeah yeah. Within that, yeah, tell me. Go on. No, yeah. You say. Within the qualification you had to take, how much experience have you had in that training with cancer patients? I think it's, uh, I think it's variable. Okay. Um, but anyone who is doing, and you know, a lot of it is, is learning through seeing patients as well and seeing patients who like you said, are all different stages of treatments have got all different issues going on. So a lot of that is the experience um, as you're working. I think um, it it comes down to being, you know, who is a menopause specialist, I suppose, really as as well. And that anybody, you know, there there is the opportunity to do um, an advanced qualification and to have spent time in clinics, uh, gaining that experience, to um, have um, done, you know, it, there's written work which goes along with that as well. So very much making that your specialism and, and committing to that. So I think seeing anybody who is in that situation is absolutely going to be able to deal with the more complex problems. When people are less complex, then they may choose to see a menopause doctor privately who doesn't necessarily have have that that qualification. And that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be able to help lots of women. But I suppose in this situation, if you know that you are more complex, then it, it to get the most out of that appointment, looking for someone who hopefully has got the best chance of having had a, a broad experience of seeing lots of patients and patients in your situation yeah. would I, be the right thing. I would always say, really do your research because we work with women after endometrial cancer and other cancers that are really specific and their needs and their possibilities of even vaginal estrogen would be very different to those of the breast cancer cohort and, and other sort of groups. And so I think it's really important when you are going to spend the money and clearly we shouldn't have to spend the money because we've got you know, we've been through so much, but I totally get it. Some people really want to move those appointments forward. I think it's really important to do your research, ask the question, email the secretary, has this doctor um, worked with cancer patients, maybe in an NHS setting, or are they experienced enough? That's probably one thing I would say now uh, from the conversations I had over the last sort of six months with people. Um, Lindsay, is it a rewarding is a rewarding job because I feel we often have very little hope that there are things that we can do. And obviously I wanted to prove everyone wrong. And that is the point of the whole podcast. I want everyone to know we have loads of options. There's loads we can do, you know, from our lifestyle to medical options, to prescribable things, to 
avoiding triggers, like there is so much we can do. But within the time you have and within the settings you have, do you feel you can make an impact to really help someone um, with their menopausal symptoms after cancer? Absolutely. And I think one of the saddest things is that I often speak to women who for years have felt that there is nothing that can be done to help them. They've been told they can't have HRT, so therefore that is it. They've just got to carry on with their symptoms and put up with them. And so, yeah, it's incredibly rewarding helping those those women and finding ways for them to, you know, navigate navigate around that. And that might be something as simple as someone who is really struggling with, well, it's not simple, but who's really struggling with their sleep. And it might have been triggered by their hormones in the beginning. It might have been triggered by um, the, you know, the emotional burden of, of that diagnosis as well. But it might be being then perpetuated by something else so something like that helping someone to understand that this isn't necessarily all your hormones it might be and there might be an element of that but when you think it's all about the hormones it can feel like there's absolutely nothing that you're going to be able to do about it whereas breaking it down and looking at actually what's going on here and I think there are things that we can do to improve this it it can be a real relief I think to patients to not just think right well I've got these low hormones I can't do, if it's someone who can't have HRT, I've got these low hormones, I can't do anything about it. Therefore, I just have to live like this for the rest yeah. of my life. And I I think they're the most rewarding women because actually it's giving someone that hope and, and a, you know, a toolbox, like you said, of things that we can look at that they might not have considered would be helpful. Thank you, Lindsay. This has been brilliant. If anyone takes anything away from this conversation, it's what Lindsay just said, don't wait. <laughs> Go and try and get that help ASAP, isn't it? Um, And don't think you have no options. And really open up to any of the doctors who are involved in your care. You know, oncologists do want to know that you're experiencing these symptoms because then they can access help for you and speak to your GP and say, you know, very often patients who are having cancer treatments don't see their GP that often because they are being in a specialist setting and actually you know often GPs can be really helpful uh, usually are really helpful and if not being able to offer that help themselves we can act as the person that can pull all of the bits together and we can speak to your oncologist and we can speak to the other people that are involved and we can then help you to navigate the system so I think you know it's about yeah trusting in the system and speaking to people. You're amazing. With all the three hats you wear, working in all these different clinical settings, you've given a a fantastic overview of how we can access menopause clinics in the UK. I'm going to link to the British Menopause Society um, uh, Specialist Finder tool. I think that is great what you've mentioned. Um, Thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in person soon at one point. And in the meantime, I'm now going to put my walking shoes on because did you see we've got a walking challenge on the go? And we're going to get everyone out there walking and walking through the seasons. And sometimes when we are waiting for these long, long appointments and the waiting list is really long, it's really great to do something else. Take your mind off that weight and to just walk through it is a great way. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I'll speak to you very soon.
I wonder how you're feeling now and whether if you've had pen and paper out, whether you've taken notes, maybe this episode was a really good starting point for you to think who is in my healthcare team? Do I have a good relationship with my GP? Or maybe you want to try and find a new GP. Maybe you need to phone your doctor's surgery and ask who is the best GP or who's the best nurse in your practice to help with women's health issues, the menopause, and who maybe has the most expertise in helping people who've had a, a history of cancer. This is a really good time for you to think, I'm going to put together an amazing team of doctors around me and how can I access them? Because I feel once you're managing menopause after a cancer diagnosis, it's a long process. Like I will always be in menopause now since my surgically onset menopause. And so I'll always I'll always have to manage this and you might be on hormone medication and so you might have to muddle through these really difficult phases of navigating hormone suppression for maybe five or ten years so it's a really good time for you to think who is there to help me and how can I put this healthcare team um, around me together. I think one of my real superpowers, as I describe them now, is not just sharing the information with you of what's what, um, the black and white, the evidence of how you can access certain services, but that is also really feeding back to you at home what the hundreds of women tell me when I meet them at workshops, events, when I guide them through our programs, for example. And that is, I think, the real value I want to bring to the table. And so if today you're thinking, gosh, I'm also on the waiting list to see a menopause specialist. But I kind of heard from Danny that some women say the appointment hasn't actually fixed all of their problems and they haven't found all of the solutions or answers uh, to their questions. Then bear with me and I really want to say to you, this is only one appointment in time. Don't maybe pin all of your hopes onto this one appointment. No one doctor is going to give you all of the solutions. However good they are, it's hardly possible. What I think we need to do is really think of our toolbox and this menopause specialist appointment is going to be one part of your toolbox of putting together how you manage your menopause after cancer. Think of your lifestyle and how you live every single day. Join our walking challenge. Get out there, walk in nature, lift some weights, go to yoga, find something that brings you joy. Whatever it is, move your amazing body in 360 degree ways, however you feel is really good for you. Think of how you can improve your eating. Even if it's adding the one apple, the celery stick with peanut butter, maybe making one new breakfast a week. Think of how you can improve what you're doing. What about your stress? What about your anxiety? Is there anything you can do to help that? Maybe plug yourself in to a meditation. All of these lifestyle things are a really integral part and they will keep you going when you're on the waiting list, for example, to see a menopause specialist. There are so many other things in our toolbox, but I think the whole podcast here is about this toolbox. Every episode I want to create to put a little bit more into your toolbox at home, because I know some things resonate with you and some things might not resonate with you and they might resonate with someone else. We're all so different. But I hope within those podcast episodes, you're finding lots and lots of things so that you feel you have plenty of options. There is always something you can do. And if right now you want to put together a really amazing team of healthcare professionals around you, then maybe that's what you do now. 
I love having these conversations. I can't wait to come back on the podcast next week to talk to you again, share more stories, share more hope and information. And until then, wishing you all a good week.